0: everyone welcome to HR works brought to you by BLR I'm your host Steve Bruce HR works provides clear relevant actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals when you're armed with best practices plus the knowledge to keep your organization in compliance HR works Wouldn't it be nice if all the relationships we have at work were stress-free and productive Actually Wouldn't it be nice if all the relationships we have in life were stress-free and productive? But experience suggests that that's not going to be the case. And at work, HR managers have a dual role. They have to manage their own relationships, but they also have to step in when other relationships are floundering. So to gain some perspective and some practical tips, we've asked Dr. Henry Cloud to join us today. He's a psychologist, a New York Times best-selling author, and has a syndicated radio show airing in 200 markets. Welcome to HR
1: Works, Henry. Good to be with you guys.
0: Let me start out by asking and, you to...
1: And can, can I start out by saying a little bit of something about HR? Sure. Because I, you know, I, I work mainly with CEOs and, and their executive teams, and when it gets past that and you start to work really... Um, you know, very deep within, within the company, the, the HR person is really the thought partner so often of what drives this, this side of making, making a company or an organization work and um, I just love it when, when CEOs see, see HR as their, their most important strategic partner. And I, my, my hat always goes off to you guys, so I just want to start there.
0: Oh, great. Thanks. So let me start out by asking you to tell us a little bit about your newest book, The Power of the Other, the startling effect other people have on you, from the boardroom to the bedroom and beyond, and what to do about it.
1: Um, well, it's actually a book that I've been wanting to write for a long time um, because in this leadership space and, and the HR space and the people getting to better performance space, we always tend to talk about how people need to improve, and that's true. You know, they got to up their, their competencies and their skills and their knowledge base and, and their techniques, and it's always focused on how they need to get better, which is true. What we don't talk about though is reality because the reality is in both the research as well as our experience, the reality is the only way that people get better in all those areas is in the context of a relationship. And there's neurological reasons for this, there's psychological reasons, there's emotional reasons, there's intellectual reasons, but we just don't get better without the power of the other helping us to get better. And conversely, you ask any leader or any person about their best season in life, their highest performance season, and their worst season, and there's going to be another person on the other end of that.
0: So the book offers a theory of relationships, um, the four corners of leadership in life, that helps readers and listeners identify the absence of negative, false, and truly positive relationships in their lives. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, it's just a little, a little kind of tool that I like to use with people in, in when they're looking at kind of the power of the other in their own teams or in their own organizations or you know around the the table with who they're working with. And what I tell them is that you know it's it's kind of like your cell phone. All right, when you when you've got when you're flying in an airplane, you got your cell phone, you got it turned off what do you do the first thing you land is you turn it on now when you turn it on what's the first thing that happens on that screen in the top left corner you see it says searching for connection here's why that is so so important up until that phone makes its connection with the network it's very limited in what it can do it can do basically what it can do on its own, read whatever email is there, already on the phone, or do whatever apps, but it never can become more and able to do more or perform at its highest level until it makes a connection with the network. That's where it downloads updates, it's where it communicates, it's where it gets power, it does all this stuff. Now, I start with that because you and I are like that. Every human is just like that phone in that we have a chip inside of us. That as soon as we wake up on the planet, it's searching for a connection. You know, you have a little baby, and what do they do? Wait, wait, wait. What are they looking for? We're looking for food and water, but they're looking for a relationship. Now, it's interesting. Why is that important? Because you can feed and water that baby, but if you don't connect with them, if there's not a relationship, their brains don't grow. The circuitry, the hardwiring in their brains don't grow. Their intellect does not grow. Language is retarded, retarded. Physical well-being, you know, failure to thrive, immune system, all of this stuff, and all of these capacities come from something invisible called relationship. Now, you and I are like that, and it's from the womb to the tomb, all the way. You know, you take octogenarians. If they have a heart attack or stroke, whether or not they're going to have a second heart attack or stroke, given the same medical care, one group will and the other group won't. And the group that doesn't are the ones that have the most relational support. So this is huge. It's true for Navy SEALs. It's true for Olympic athletes. It's true for CEOs. It's true for mental management that this connected thing is what we're always seeking to literally download what we need in order to thrive, just like a phone. So having said that, what I tell people is, I want you to get a little piece of paper, and it's gonna have four corners on it. And this is a map, this is your GPS of where you are at any given moment. Corner one is no connection. You're still searching for a connection. You may be on a team, you may be in a relationship, you may have a boss, you may have somebody in your life, but you're really not connecting. You're kind of in it alone, and needs go unmet, and you're not fueled, and a bunch of other stuff. So you're 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 really just still by yourself in the midst of people. The second corner is what we call a bad connection, and that's a that's a connection with a boss, a coworker, a friend, a spouse, or whoever it is, where the basic dynamic in that relationship is you end up feeling bad about yourself. You're not good enough. You never can meet the expectations. They're critical. There's a toxic dynamic that works with you know, guilt or shame or whatever it is. There's a connection, but it leaves you feeling somehow bad, and that's not a, that's not helpful either. And then we don't want to feel bad all the time, so the third possibility is we go down to corner number three, and that's a, that's a pseudo-good connection. It, it's where we try to connect with somebody or something that just makes us feel good, and, you know, we self-medicate in some way. It can be a person, it can be somebody flatters you or just strokes your ego or agrees with everything you say or thinks you're great all the time, or it can be an addiction, you know, it could be a substance or it could be any kind of behavior, but it's an attempt to feel good, and we try to connect with some experience that makes us feel good or a person. And that doesn't work either. And the only one that works is what we call Corner 4. And Corner 4 is real, authentic connection where you're truly who you are, your strengths and your weaknesses, your needs, your fears, your victories, all of that sort of stuff, and you're with real others who are the same way. And, and what we see is in that corner, when you have a company like that, you have a team like that, you have a marriage like that, you have a friendship like that, what we see is we see people getting better, and we see them thriving and getting past whatever limits they have. So that's briefly a synopsis.
0: Well, I'm going to look for corner four in my life. That's, that's clear.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's in, it's in every context. I'll talk to, you know, I'll take an executive team through this and say, okay, how'd you guys do in this meeting? What corner did you hang out with? And, and they will literally be able to see it. They'll say, well, you know, we're kind of like in corner two here. We're being pretty critical of each other, but we're not solving problems. And so they can learn to self-diagnose, and then they say, look, we need to get down to corner four. And then they start to be real.
0: Well turning more particularly to the workforce how do you define and identify a toxic or a dysfunctional workplace environment
1: Well you know there's no almost no limit to our abilities to be dysfunctional right <laughs> <laughs> we we we're, we're, we're pretty good at that but we can you know we can put and I think it's it's helpful to put to put some labels on it because when we begin to see the specifics of that, then we can begin to see, you know, kind of something we can do about it. So I'll give you some basic categories here. The first one is that it's a toxic environment is going to be defueling in some way, it's going to be de energizing. What I mean by that is we are designed to, and we, it's just true, we gain energy or lose energy in relation to people. Now, I'm not talking about energy like you work hard and exert yourself and you you go take a nap or good night's rest or some time off and you get re- replenished. What I'm talking about is the actual energy flow that happens, you know, within people. I mean, you felt this, you're having a meeting and everything is going well and then somebody walks in and joins that meeting, the whole room changes thinking patterns change how people feel change the creativity goes down simply because the wrong person showed up so so in an environment what you get is you get de-energizing the second one is that instead of freedom and freedom is and it's it's you know it's it's the other side of that coin is freedom and self control a toxic environment does not give people freedom to be in control of themselves. What they do is, this is an environment where you might have a lot of responsibility, but you're really not free to execute on that. You're not free to use your talents. You're not, It's sort of like you're micromanaged, you're controlled, you're manipulated, you're pressurized. You know, my my 15-year-old is just learning how to drive and she just got her permit. And I'm telling you, I am a performance expert, and I know the brain works best when they have so when you're not trying to control them. But sitting in that dry, in that passenger seat and not micromanage her is really difficult, and that's difficult for work environments. And once we really define somebody's role and responsibility, we've got to set them free to be able to 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 accomplish that or not. And then the third one is that that the real toxic ones were are really not held responsible and held accountable in good clear ways that help structure us. you know one of the one of the best things that we we have in life is when when freedom and responsibility go together and if you set somebody free it's very helpful for us to hold each other responsible and accountable to what we're expecting from one another and what you see in toxic environments is the way that people are held responsible is very, very uh, negative and painful and toxic and doesn't really up performance. Or they're really not held responsible in a, any way at all. And and one of the worst things that we can do is be in a place where we don't know how we're doing and we're not held accountable and we're 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 kind of floundering. So that's another piece and. And when you look at those, like the disengagement instead of fueling, the controlling instead of freedom, the the not held not get held responsible and accountable instead of uh, doing so, and when you look at those, it's just a it's a cesspool for a toxic environment. And then the next piece of that is that that we really need to have some way of what I call managing the gap or defanging the beast is the name of the chapter in the book and it's basically this all of us any given moment where we have a here and a there right here's where we are and we'd like to be there we want to up our performance if that's called being alive you know if we replayed this interview I could see how I answer questions I could say you know what I could have done better there let me try this next time well that that goal and that, that requirement that we have on ourselves and for others, really we really need for that to exist so we can get better. But the question is, does that standard or that goal, is that friend or foe? See, a standard can either be an enemy. That's why I call it defanging the beast. we got to defang standards so they don't attack us, judge us, and move against us because we're wired if we experience something as a foe we move away from it so we're gonna we're gonna our performance diminishes because we move away from the standard that's attacking us or judging us however since we need that standard if we can make those standards positive so they can tell me where I am and pull me upwards towards them and that's a really invigorating learning environment. And we know that people only get better in a state of arousal and that, that part of that arousal is when the standard is calling me upward. And that's kinda like the next piece of an environment like this. And that is that we get the right kind of push. We we need to be pushed. You know, Michael Phelps is swimming down the lane in a in a pool at the Olympics. And he takes his breath, and he looks over, and somebody in the lane next to him is starting to pass him. You're going to see his performance go up, and we need that kind of challenge. And that puts us in what what researchers like like Chintz, uh, how do you pronounce it, Chintz has called has called being in the flow. And that's where we're stretched constantly, but we're not stretched too far to where we're overwhelmed. So that's just a few of the elements of those corner four relationships that I think lead to. Toxic or non-toxic environments.
0: Now, when a HR manager senses there's some kind of a toxic problem, how do you decide whether it's an individual problem or something systemic in the organization?
1: Well, that's a really good question, um, and I like to talk to organizations and, and to HR people about about an organization having an immune system. You know, your body has an immune system. And if you take in an antigen or a bacteria or something, let let's say you uh, you know you eat, eat something with dirty hands or whatever. Well, what you see your body having is you see it have it levels of immune response. So the body says, you know, what's going on there is is not good, right? So what you see is you see a very low level. Is that we don't even notice a low level immune response where in your saliva, for example, or you know, in the acids in your esophagus, it's gonna it's gonna see that and name it and go and take care of it. Alright? If that doesn't work, if the bacteria is too strong, then it's gonna go to the next level and then these marker cells are gonna go out and they're gonna name it and say, This is Ebola, you know, nineteen forty seven India or something, and they're going to name it, and then they're going to send other cells around it to surround it and contain it, and they're going to fix it, and then it goes on to greater and greater, then you get to inflammation, you get all these other higher level responses. Now, why do I say that? Because when you're talking about a systemic problem in an organization, what you've got to ask is, does this organization have healthy immune functioning? meaning that an organization a team a department an environment a group enforces its norms okay so if you're in a healthy organization doesn't have a systemic problem then if somebody starts to have you know some kind of toxic behavior or something and that group i mean even at that table around that team they will have been developing their immune system, and they have covenants with each other. And this is how we're going to hold each other accountable. And this is the way our team works. And if somebody gets out of line, the the saliva itself at that t- it never makes it to HR. That team says, "Hey, wait a minute. You know, we're supposed to like like Ed Catmull says at Pixar, we're supposed to you know we're supposed to say it with respect and say it all. Now you just said it all, but that wasn't really respectful. So try again. Right? The team is going to just just fix it right there. But if you have a systemic problem of there's no immune functioning in this organization because the values have not built, been built and communicated and reinforced, you don't have teams that work on how they work together, then you might have bad behavior, but you can't just say this is an individual because the whole body is infected, and we got to go to work at upping the health of the system As well as addressing the problems of the individuals, and so I think it's um, HR's—you know—it's one of HR's jobs to to help an organization look at okay, what, how does the immune system work here, and are bosses equipped to address? Well, first of all, before bosses, our coworkers—have they been taught and trained how to address bad behavior with each other first? if that doesn't work, what's the next step of the immune response? And and it, you got to get the organization healthy to fix individual problems, or they will take over the system.
0: All right. Well, if um, HR professionals do witness some kind of workplace dysfunction, how can they work to enact a change, uh, individually and departmentally?
1: Well, I think I'd I would look at it in a couple of different ways, and 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 one of them is, you know, whenever we're enacting a change, um, that that works its way along a path. You know, the first thing is somebody's got to be made aware of it, and a lot of people aren't even aware of what's going on. And so we, we, you know, what HR's got to do is equip people to help each other become aware that that this behavior sound okay and it's not our values and et cetera, et cetera. So there's got to be some sort of some sort of way in which people become aware of how they're expected to perform and function and behave and then become aware of when they're not so then after the awareness what we've got to have what the brain needs in order to change is it's got to have some way of drawing attention to specifically what it needs to do different. So now I made you aware of this behavior. And now here's what we're going to attend to. We're going to learn to communicate differently, or you're going to learn to do this, or you're going to learn to do that. And so once we've gotten the attention of the person and the attention on what specifically we need to do, then we've got to also be able to focus on it on an ongoing basis. Because if people don't have immediate and ongoing actionable feedback and change in behavior along with relational support to do that and some sort of structure to help them do that, it's not going to change. And what we see people doing a lot of times, and you see this in HR as well as other aspects of life, is they'll just give each other feedback, you know, once you do this differently. But they don't realize this is a what you're trying to do is lay down new circuitry in somebody's brain, and that takes awareness and focus and attention and relational support and feedback to do that. So I, I, I think that's a big part of it, and you got to ask, as an HR professional, do I have all those pieces, and have I surrounded somebody with that? Another thing I like to do is, is I like to get the person to identify the stakeholders of this behavior. In other words, okay, so... There's people that are depending on you to be A, B, and C, and you're X, Y, and Z, right? So I want you to go identify the two or three stakeholders in having you do this differently, and I want them to be the people that rate you. And you go sit down and come back with an agreement, and you say, you know, HR talked to me about this, and I'm trying to get better at listening, and you... You see me all the time and and you know can I get a weekly scorecard from you and I want to get your feedback and I'm not here to argue or negate it or anything and I like to put the stakeholders in charge of actually monitoring and driving some of the improvement
0: well, that's great now um, you've talked about the power of mentors and role models in the workplace can you tell us a little more about that
1: well it's very hard you know, it's hard for the brain to to do something it's never seen, right? And and modeling, we know that modeling is a really, really big deal. In fact, now, you know, you read the neuroscientists, and we actually have these things, we know we've got these things called mirror neurons, and we watch something, and, and you know, we've already started to learn how to think about, to feel, and organize the system to be able to do it. And And so mentors do a lot of modeling, but what, what mentors do is I always think about a good, a good mentoring relationship as having four very distinct channels of delivery. And I like to see HR departments think about it in, in this way because this is really how people get better. There's going to be four things you have to worry about. Number one is are we giving in mentoring relationships, is there a transmission of information? So for us to change, for us to get better, I gotta know something that I don't know. You know, if my golf swing is gonna change, then my teacher's gotta look at me and and say, you know what, you're gonna get a lot more club head speed if you take it back to parallel instead of three quarters, right, so there's some kind of info I need, a principle, a direction, some kind of something, and so when we're trying to mentor someone, what great mentors do is they pass on information and say, hey, I just read this book or I want you to check out this blog or here's a download I think would be helpful to you. And my mentors are always, you know, they're forwarding me links to something they just read. So the information piece is number one. Number two is we need relationship. Now this is, I just said we need relationship in this whole category, right? But what I mean by relationship here is literal, literal connectedness where you're getting support you're getting empathy you're getting understanding you're getting feedback you're getting correction you're getting challenged you're getting observed see we need that in the flesh we need we need people that that are literally talking to us in some form or fashion and they the relationship itself has power because we're, we're downloading really things. We're downloading energy and coding from those relationships and so that's the second piece. And the third one is experiences. We don't grow without experiences and I think what good relationships that our mentors do is they they see the experiences that their mentees need and they take them in those experiences. Let's go on a sales call or I want you to sit in on this meeting with me or I'm going to put you out there and let you try it and I'm going to give you feedback and I'm going to watch you But they think about, what kind of experiences do I need to provide for this person that's going to help them grow? And then the fourth one is, there's got to be some sort of structure. You know, we don't grow just doing things as we feel like it. You know, people that get in shape, they have a structure. They go work out at a certain time, a certain place, and there's a schedule to it, and there's a dosage to it. And so we're not going to grow just, okay, well, um, you know, here's your goals for the year and growth, and I'll check back in with you in December. I want to see a structure and a time and place. And I can tell you somebody's growing by looking at their calendar. It doesn't have to be overly structured, but it can't be free-for-all either. You don't see growth when you, when you do that.
0: So beyond the, uh, the mentors and the role models, and um, we've got business leaders. And so what are some of the qualities that all the great business leaders you've encountered have in common?
1: Oh gosh, that is a boy. You can get some innocent theoretical debates on that one, right? <laughs> um, depending on on who you talk to. But I, when I think of the the great things that that leaders do, I'm going to give you a couple of different kind of ways that I think about this. I think of leadership as basically a leader is going to always be doing five things. Number one, a leader has some way of coming up with and communicating a desired future state that does not exist. We call that a vision. So what leaders do, first of all, is leaders can see something that doesn't exist and they can call that out and name it and make it in a way that's captivating and motivating people and they come in and they're going to lead this team and they're taking over this team or this company and they say you know what I I can see a company here that that looks like this and it's where people come to work and they we're creating stuff or we're we're, we've gone and captured ninety percent of the market or whatever but there's something that doesn't exist today that a leader is able to see that nobody else sees and they're able to make that clear and they're able to make it compelling. That I wanna go there is the feeling that people get. You just painted a picture of something, I wanna go join, I wanna invest myself in. That's the first one. The second one is that a leader can't go anywhere to there by themselves. So the second thing is they've gotta be able to engage the talent. And great leaders have a way of figuring out, you know, it's like Jim Collins said, who. What seats do I need on the bus to get there? And then who's gonna fill those? And great leaders basically have have really good ways of engaging talent and they can not only help people get engaged and motivated, but they also are really good at picking the talent that they need to have around them and they're able to, to engage them through a lot of different methods. And then the third one is that great leaders don't just, you know, just then hop at it they have a plan they have a strategy they have a way that we're gonna get from here to there and that becomes clear to people so so it's like uh, you know it's just with um, the the long-term cr- creator of the the culture at Southwest Airlines and and she she was talking about how you know they were just so so clear about their strategy. They basically had three strategic initiatives. They were gonna be low cost, they were gonna be on time, and they were gonna drive customer loyalty. Now, that's our plan, that's our strategy. So, when a gate agent knows that's how we're gonna get there, and somebody runs up and says, hey, can I, I'm on a later flight, can I get on this plane? It doesn't take them 45 minutes to figure it out. They have a very clear strategy. The gate agent says, well, there's a seat open, so it's not gonna affect cost. Uh, we have time, you can hop on the plane, it's not going to make us late, and boy, is this going to make this customer loyal? Hey, yeah, sure, hop on the plane. And see, leaders have set strategy and plans into place that people can actually follow, and then they execute against those. And, 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 and they inhibit anything that gets in the way of that plan or that strategy, and they don't change it every other day. And then the fourth thing they do is they measure and hold people accountable to how we're working the plan and how are we doing the activities that are going to make that work and they have ways and systems of making sure everybody's held accountable there's directly responsible individuals and they know that and then once they hold people accountable they do the fifth thing they fix stuff they adapt to what they find and they do it quickly so no matter what the style of the great leaders, you know, you say, what do great leaders have in common, you know, some of them are personality driven in this and, and, and others are, you know, knowledge driven and others are technically driven and others are influence driven, but they all make sure that all five of those things are happening because you don't get from here to there without all five of those.
0: Well, this is great. Henry, thanks so much for joining us today and providing these very helpful tips.
1: Well, it's very, very good to be with you guys. Like I said, I, I, I love HR. Have a lot of you know, in a lot of the companies I work with, the HR person is is sort of the, you know, my internal partner to do this. And um, I just you know love to provide tools and all sorts of stuff for them. So give us a call. We'd love we'd love to work with whatever. You, your organization needs to make people thrive because that's why we're in this.
0: To learn more about Dr. Cloud and how he can help your organization, visit drcloud.com. That's D-R-C-L-O-U-D dot Listeners, please let me know what HR Works should cover next. sbruce at blr.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works.
1: The opinions expressed on HR Works do not represent legal or any
0: other type of professional advice and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified attorney licensed in your state.